This is Jane Smith reporting for WASP News. We report so you don't have to decide. Now, we're live outside of Sovereign Studios, where a protest has been taking place. Uh, sir, sir, what is going on here? We're going to put an end to his godless hedonism. He's corrupting the entire planet. Uh, you must be talking about the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. That's right. That sex fiend of an anarchist has crossed the line. We're going to rip his triple black clothing and then him to shreds. But Brian Sovereign believes in nonviolence. We don't care. He wants to end government and wants to pervert science and technology to do it. Brian Sovereign has to be stopped. This just in. Brian Sovereign is coming out of the studio. Questions keep coming in asking, what does it take, Golden Stallion, to be the Golden Stallion, to be the man of tomorrow, to be Savzu, to be Dr. Brian Sovereign? And let me tell you, it takes a lot of diet cola. It takes a lot of book reading. And I mean real books, not those motherfucking websites. Woo! That's what it takes, baby. (laughs) Uh, As you can probably tell, I am on location this week. And that means I know I left sovereign tech with a bit of a cliffhanger last week well you're gonna have to wait a week for that cliffhanger to come to fruition but i tell you as many people know i usually deliver the goods whenever i make something like that happen so keep listening don't worry you'll find out what is this brian soviet of the kgb all about (laughs) it is it's on its way uh but anyway on location uh i can't say where but uh, using my trusty blue Yeti, blue, blue Yeti, blah, 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 blue Yeti microphone here. And uh, we've got a lot to cover. But I want to I, first I want to start off, you know, I, and I put a link to this in the show notes because I thought it was such a great list uh, of podcasts. But I got included in the Mad Philosopher, who I've mentioned before uh, on this show. He has a, a website, madphilosopher.weebly.com. Again, link will be in the show notes. And I got listed at number five on this this list of podcasts, which I thought was great. And what he had to say was really, really kind. And I want to read it here. It says, Sovereign Tech, a tech and culture podcast with another paradigm anarchist. A little think left sometimes. Well, that, that's fair. <laughs> but always well-reasoned and intellectual. Brian Sovereign has done more for liberty than any politician ever. 
Woo! Can you get enough of that? <laughs> I love I thought that was just dynamite. That, that was so good. Uh, so thank you so much for that, uh, Mad Flosser. I appreciate, uh, you know, such high praise, quite frankly. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully I can live up to it. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, because politicians, do they ever do anything <laughs> you know, to, to bring on liberty? Uh, okay, let, let's get into... No, you know what? Before the random access, I want to mention, again, I've already gotten some emails from people saying they can't wait uh, to see me. And of course, the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy will be there as well at Bitcoin Investor, the conference. Uh, you can go to BitcoinInvestor.com. Again, there's a link in the show notes for... This is episode 143. Uh, and you'll find the link there and you can check it out. You can get tickets. I think the early bird ticket special is over, but still a great price for getting tickets. There's going to be a ton of great speakers there. This is definitely a liberty-oriented Bitcoin conference. Uh, so I'm excited, really excited to be a part of it. I will be giving a talk called Life 4.0 there. And I mean, come on, how could you not want to hear that? <laughs> so if you're in Vegas, baby, come in and, you know, ch- come and check out the Golden Stallion. I'll be giving uh, one hell of a talk. And of course, uh, Stephanie will be there as well, along with other great speakers. So I'm really honored to be a part of this. And uh, yeah, please do check it out. So anyway, we got that. Of course, Keenventions coming up. I'm sure listeners of this show have been hearing quite a bit about that. I will be doing the tech panel there. Once again, the only three-time return uh, panel host. Uh, you know, and I'm really honored by that. Of course, Ian Freeman, you know, is holding this event, and it's a fa- it's the end of October. Both of these events are kind of concurrent. One is October 29th to the 30th. That's Bitcoin Investor Conference. And then Keenvention is uh, uh, the 30th or 31st to November 1st. Uh, both great events. I mean, that that's, you know, just making sure that the East and the West Coast are just absolutely covered with the seed of liberty, just spilled all over the place. Woo! <laughs> so anyway, if you can catch any of those, please do. I'd love to love to see you. Don't hesitate uh, to say hi to Savzu if you see me there. But anyway, Let's get into the random access. I got a ton of, you know, really, really great stories to get to uh, throughout the whole episode. In fact, some of this stuff is really, I felt like it was really important to talk about now and I wanted to get it out there. So I'm almost glad that my hand was a little forced to not release uh, the the episode that I had originally planned for this week, which was the sequel to, to, to last week's episode, uh, because this is stuff that needs to get out there, I think, you know, kind of right away, or at least I'd like to be on record as having said it, uh, you know, right away, because uh, it's some interesting things that had come to fruition here. So why don't we open up with Microsoft? <laughs> In fact, you know, something else the mad philosopher said, uh, he, he had made a comment on various social media. He said, listening to the random access of Sovereign Tech is like hearing an audio version of the show uh, uh, Black Mirror. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. And Black Mirror is a great science fiction show. It's kind of the modern day Twilight Zone, really good. Uh, so if, if you've seen Black Mirror, I, I'm sure you got the joke. But anyway, let's let's get into what Microsoft uh, is talking or is is doing right now because it's pretty pretty interesting. And it's something that honestly I've kind of said was going to happen. Uh, after a fashion, but I think it's a precursor to what event, to what's really going to be happening. And that is Microsoft has built a Linux distribution. They have built their own Linux operating system. It's true. It's called Azure Cloud Switch. And really in the name, you kind of find out what this is about. Now, it's not... It's not exactly like an operating system you can go download on and run on a machine. This is designed, this is kind of like for cross-platform data center networking. So that's, you know, an Azure, of course, is 
that's Microsoft's, you know, not their cloud service, but that's their cloud. That's the name of their cloud network, kind of like with, uh, you know, it's it's comparable to Amazon's, uh, you know, AWS and all that. So a fair chunk of the Internet is stored on Azure. And in fact, uh, sadly, I think the military is somewhat stored on that. Of course, so is uh you know, Amazon, you know, like the CIA and all that is all using a lot of AWS storage and things of that nature. Uh, and actually, there's the theory, and I don't think this is yet to be proven, but there's the theory that iCloud is sitting right alongside uh, some of that military usage on Azure, um, you know, because it uses Azure as its backbone even though Apple won't admit to it because everybody looks around and it's like, well, wait a minute, where, where the hell are, where, where's Apple's servers? What are they using? And so the theory goes is that that's actually Azure. But anyway, enough of that, that stuff aside. And, and I'm just, you know, kind of in mentioning the military connection thing, I'm, I'm just trying to show you that all these companies, you know, there, there's none of them is like, Oh, I can't believe Microsoft worked with it. You know, I mean, come on, they're, they're all doing it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but Azure cloud switch, this is interesting because it is, you know, completely open source. And, you know, something a lot of people might not realize about Linux is that Microsoft is in the top 20 companies that contributes to the Linux kernel. They, they contribute, I think, about 1% of Linux kernel code over the past few years. I mean, and so, again, they are in the top 20. And that's, that's the amount of companies that contribute to the Linux kernel. You got to be doing a lot of code to be breaking into that top 20. And so Microsoft has. Now, obviously, first off, this isn't the first time that Microsoft has messed with Linux or that they've even created a, uh, you know, kind of an open source operating system. Now, I'm not talking about Midori. We talked about Midori on Sovereign Tech uh, a few weeks ago, where I think that that's a direction that Microsoft will eventually be taking in that they will create Midori, which will be their pay-for operating system, and then Windows 10 will be free. But what I also predicted was that Windows 10 would eventually become completely open source. And I think that this is kind of a quiet admission that Microsoft knows that that's the direction to go. Okay, with, uh, you know, with, with this Azure Cloud uh, switch, or maybe we should call it ACS uh, for short. So the direction they're going with ACS is, I mean, and now it suddenly starts to make sense, right? Why they've been making uh, like .NET frameworks and all this stuff available for Linux because they want everybody to be able to connect to, uh, you know, ACS. And they know, I mean, this is, you know, even though they haven't said it explicitly, I think Microsoft knows that open nature is really the only way you're going to be able to get uh, all of the systems, the variety of systems that we have today to be able to communicate with each other and to connect with each other. So it's really Microsoft. I think the creation of ACS is Microsoft admitting that open source is the future. And that's exciting. I'm not saying Microsoft is in any way, a, you know, a grand ethical company or anything. I'm just saying that they're recognizing they see the writing on the wall. Much as, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, some old Babylonian king did before their kingdom fell. Now, I don't know if Microsoft's going to fall because I think, again, as I predicted, that they will eventually get in. They will make Windows 10, uh, you know, an open source operating system. And there's been a Microsoft engineer that that clued into that that notion. Uh, and also, like I said, they had in I think it was in the 90s that that Microsoft had created their own Unix distribution. So they've done this before. They've messed with this before. And Midori, now just to be clear, I don't think Midori is, it may not be a closed source system, but it might be something you need to subscribe to because there's nothing in the concept of Floss, which is, you know, free Libre open source software or whatever. There's nothing in that. It's free as in freedom, not free as in it doesn't cost anything. 
And I'm not saying I like the fact that an operating system would cost money. I think Windows 10, you know, being effectively free, yes, they still charge for some, you know, for some groups. Uh, you know, I, I think that that, I, I don't know that I, that I like that notion, but regardless, um, I could see them doing that. And if you, you can listen back to some episodes of Sovereign Tech where we talk more about Midori, because if you just look it up on Wikipedia, it's not going to give you the picture uh, that I, you know, that I cared uh, to paint um, about it. So I, I think that's that's fascinating. And, and I really I think that this is proof that Microsoft knows that open source is how they need to do things. And eventually, I think Windows 10 itself, that whole kernel uh, will become open source or they'll transfer that kernel maybe over to Midori. Maybe they won't have Midori be open source. Uh, but anyway. There it is. Microsoft created an open source operating system. <laughs> uh, so, all right, let, let's move on to another story because we've got we have quite a few uh, to, to get into here. Uh, OK, and Android. Wow, this was a hell. And, and I did not do a write up for the dark Android blog about this yet, uh, because I'm curious to see. I'd really like to talk about it when it has a solution. And as far as I know, I think I don't think this inf this is a problem with this is a, secu a security issue. And I don't think it affects uh, a lollipop or maybe it's lollipop that it affects but it doesn't affect marshmallow or maybe it's marshmallow if that it affects and it doesn't affect lollipop regardless if you're using KitKat and previous versions of android this cannot happen this is not an issue but what somebody discovered was that if you're at the home screen and you've got like a you know a, a pin lockout okay or you know a password lockout that you could you could essentially like like flipper. You could type in just some kind of gibberish, okay, and then you could you could copy that. You could copy that gibberish from the lock screen itself, and then you could you could flip over to I think the camera, and then you you could paste a bunch of other. You could take a picture, then paste a bunch of other stuff there a bunch of times, and then you could copy that over. I may not be getting the, the exact process right, but essentially you could all from all from the lock screen because you can access the. Uh, you know, the camera from the lock screen and, and just use that alone. Or no, I think it was through the emergency dialer, not through. Yeah. So there's, you, you know, you, how you can hit emergency dial. Uh, so obviously this wouldn't be a problem if like dark Android recommends, we just use tablets. This wouldn't be an issue, uh, but you can use the emergency dialer and then you can create this really long string. Uh, you know, of characters. And then you, you can, at, at a certain point, you could paste that in and then the, the lock screen would crash because of the length of what you pasted in. And then you'd have access to the system because it would just crash the lock screen. That's what it would literally all come down to. It's such a simple, a literal, you don't have to be a hacker to be able to do this. Anybody could do this. It's, it's really crazy. And it's, you know, it's not just Android, too. I also read a story this week that Chrome, you can crash Chrome, not the mobile version of Chrome, apparently, but the desktop version of Chrome, you could actually crash a tab just by putting in something like 16 characters. It just had to have some like special characters within uh, to do it. And like as long as it's version 45 and I think even anyone, pat, you know, before that, you could do that. And this is a long string of issues. Not a long string of characters in this case, but a long string of issues. There was a certain amount of uh, of characters that you could put into Skype that would crash Skype. And it's so funny because there was such like, you know, widespread news over the fact that you could crash Skype 
But, oh, you can crash Chrome and, oh, no, well, well let, let's just not talk about that. You know, they're like the main, the, the, the tech, you know, the mainstream tech me- journalism and media, you know, they're, they're not, they're not doing that at all because, oh, we don't want to make fun of Google because we rely so fucking much on their services and they probably are paying our fucking tab for being tech journalists. So we, we let's not insult Google. Uh, and, and so, you know, I thought that that was that. And also the Android crack was wasn't getting a whole lot of press uh, either. And, you know, then there was iMessage that has this problem. And it really, you know, raises the question, are our very, you know, our very programming languages, is that the real flaw here? Are they so broken? You know, is this stuff so goddamned old that, uh, you know, that this that the, the the whole software infrastructure that we run off of is, you know, effectively uh, yet yeah, broken. I mean, and we've talked about this before. Quinn Norton, she did a great story, you know, she, where she said everything is broken. I did it for Tech Roulette. Uh, boy, that was like a year ago or so. And she was talking about everything's written in C and C sucks. You know, and, and is that what's going on here? You know, is that's what is that what's causing these very especially, you know, with the Android one. Holy shit. I mean, it's one thing to go crashing Skype or go crashing a Chrome tab. But for fucking Android to be able to get, you know, cracked into so easily. Holy hell. I mean, that's bad news. You know, and I, I believe me. It, the the AOSP version of Android I love you know CyanogenMod I love what that can do uh, this is a this is a real problem so anyway we'll we'll be keeping tabs on this on how how all of that eventually gets solved uh, but anyway let let's move on to another story I told you I got so much to get through here <laughs> and we've got a hell of a lead story and a hell of a tech roulette. Uh, let's see, you know, something I talked about last week, the Kilton library, let's break right into this. Uh, the Kilton library, they were the first in New Hampshire. This is a library. It is my personal local library for where I, you know, for where I am in New Hampshire. Okay. And this local library was the first in the country to be, you know, to be using its, uh, you know, its network as a tour relay. And I thought that was fantastic. It was wonderful. And so I, apparently a lot of, a lot of free staters. And of course, people who listen to the show know that I am a, a participant of the free state project. You can go to freestateproject.org if you don't know what that is. Uh, but anyway, a lot of free staters, you know, showed up, I believe it was on Tuesday, the 17th to, uh, you know, to show support for, because the Kilton library got a letter from the DHS, you know, or an email, a message saying, you need to take down this tour relay. We, you, you, this is, this is really, really dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And I talked about it all on last week's episode. Uh, you can hear about it more there. And the, you know, the vote happened with the library board uh, on, on Tuesday, this past Tuesday. And they said, absolutely, you know, we're going to put that tour relay back up. And I thought that was fantastic. I'm going to be doing interviews. Uh, I'm going to go down to, you know, go to the library and do some interviews there to, you know, to get more um, on this. Cause I think that's really heroic. Um, of them to be doing that because that is tantamount to potentially, you know, if one takes us to a, a very plausible conclusion, you know, New Hampshire could have its own internet. If like, say, you know, all of, all of the, the libraries and, and like I said, I don't want to get into, you know, the whole notion of public libraries and how they work, you know, but, but I mean, but effectively you've got an infrastructure here to run an alternative internet within, uh, you know, New Hampshire itself, just by using local libraries. I think that's an exciting prospect, but it's good enough to have, you know, regardless of, you know, the concerns that we have with Tor, uh, you know, the concerns that I've raised on this show with Tor. And other shows have like uh, uh, Security Now with Steve Gibson. I love that show. Um, the concerns that we've raised, you know, over this really could be solved in large part if more people use Tor. And so if a lot of libraries 
were, you know, becoming tour relays, then that's all the better. That solves a whole slew of problems. So this is a really wonderful thing. Uh, you know, get in touch with the killer if you like and just, you know, tell them thank you uh, for, you know, supporting a, a really, you know, a technology that has potential to be very freeing and that uh, some parts of the world really rely upon. They really do, you know, and, and I mean, it's so, you know, people, it really kills me. Some people say, oh, well, I'm not worried about my security. I'm not worried about this. Well, great. You're not living in a war zone or at least not in as intense a war zone, perhaps. I would certainly say that the United States is occupied territory by a tyrannical government, that being the United States government. Okay, but, you know, you're not in like this, you know, there's not gunfire, you know, going on on every street corner you turn on. Uh, at least, you know, maybe not yet, whatever, whatever, you know what I mean? And those people rely on Tor. And so the more Tor relays are out there, the better, the more encryption going on, the better. Uh, absolutely. So, so let them know that you really appreciate what you did. I certainly did. Um, let's see what else we got for the, for random access. Um, this is, this is interesting. Alphabet, of course, that being the parent company of Google now, um, Alphabet has invested $32 million in Oscar Health via Google Capital. Now, Oscar Health, this is someone they, they, they had advertised previously uh, on, on the Twit Network. They are trying to bring health insurance to the Internet age. Now, I'm not going to get into an argument or, you know, a whole thing about health insurance because I have a whole slew of issues with it, with insurance in general. I have a lot of issues with that. But that that's something if you want to ask me about it, I can talk about it another time. Um, but Oscar Health, this is the interesting thing, is that it was announced that Google added into their search engine, uh, you know, a bunch of like like ways to find a quick, uh, you know, the best price on health insurance and a whole bunch of, you know, health insurance criteria and all of this. And people were saying then, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Google's not getting into health insurance. Calm down. That's not what this is about. They're just trying to make Google, you know, more usable for people that are interested in getting health insurance. They just want to make the search engine more usable. Well, I had said when that came out, I said, no way. I said, Google is going to get into health insurance. And when you consider the amount of, you know, data that Google collects via Android wearables and your Android phone itself and how you have Google Fit and all this stuff. In fact, the Google Fit website was updated this week at the same time that we found out about them investing 32 million in Oscar Health. I said, no way they are going to get into this and they are going to, you know, there's a classic video where a guy is ordering pizza, but all the data collected about him, you know, through his health insurance and all this stuff, eventually he ends up with the fact that he cannot possibly order that pizza because the health, you know, health insurance won't let him. And so, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that video, everybody, most people have seen it. It's really something. And I think that that video is, could become a reality. Thanks to Google. And I say, thanks with sarcasm. Uh, Google is absolutely getting into health insurance. And I think that this buy into to Oscar Health is proof of that. Now, they're just investing in and I think Google's being really careful in particular until Alphabet can, you know, can take over some more uh, or, you know, can be be a little more entrenched in people's minds uh, like Berkshire Hathaway is. Uh, they're being very careful in not buying out companies as late, if you notice. And I think that's because, you know, they're just they're scared to death of constant antitrust. Uh, another thing Google announced was that they will not be producing cars themselves. They will be outsourcing uh, you know, the, the technology to have driverless cars, but Google themselves will not make the car. And this all comes down to antitrust. Like they're scared to death that the EU or whoever else is going to, you know, break down their company. And that may be another big reason why they went to, why they created the parent company Alphabet. 
all about perceptions, all about public perception. Uh, so where Google invests money these days, I think that is tantamount in many ways to a buyout. That's my opinion on, on that matter. And I think Oscar Health uh, is one of the more interesting ones uh, to look at. But how about a little more Google News? Because this was kind of shocking. This was kind of weird, and I don't want to get conspiratorial with this, but I'll leave it to you where you want to run with this. Google Maps on the weekend of September 11th, the 12th, all that. If you went to Google Maps and you looked at L.A., suddenly L.A. was underwater. <laughs> like, like, like it was really weird to, to look at. Uh, you know, that, that whole area was, was completely submerged. And people saw it and said, what the hell is this? Is this some kind of like climate change warning or, you know, what's what's going on here? Now, Google claimed that really it was just it was an error of what map showed up. They said that that, you know, Google Maps isn't just one map. It's a bunch of maps like there's, you know, uh, uh, you know, oceanographic uh, or oceanography maps and all, you know, and topography maps, all of this. And so it just for some reason one of the oceanography maps ended up, you know, taking precedence, but I don't, you know, I, I don't buy that. And I'll tell you why, because if, if the map just kind of screwed up, like if, if one map came over the other, why wasn't the whole earth underwater? Like if, if that's what happened, if it was just a map layer that kind of poked its, you know, peeked its head up or whatever, uh, shouldn't more oddities have been underwater? Yeah, I, I don't buy it. Now, I also don't buy the idea that it was some kind of climate change map because they're, they're like the East Coast should have been underwater. I mean, like there should have been a whole slew of things going on there. I don't know what it is. I don't know what that was. Maybe it was just a glitch. Maybe that's the most reasonable solution, but I'll leave it to you. But I don't buy Google's story. I don't buy the idea that it was some kind of climate change map. So I'm not sure. What the hell was going on there? Maybe it was a future real estate map, a la Lex Luthor, Superman 1. Remember that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, now the last thing, I, I, or the last couple things I want to get into before we get into our main story. Uh, Android Pay, finally, my phone finally updated, my Android phone finally updated, which I, I rarely use. Uh, and, and it went from Google Wallet into Android Pay. And there is no sign, and I've had, you know, I've, I've talked to people who've kind of looked over what they can of the code of Android Pay. There is no sign whatsoever ever of Bitcoin getting integrated into it. No sign whatsoever. And I'm going to keep hitting this point home. And please, I'm not anti-Bitcoin, but I, I, I'm a, certainly a realist. And the reality is that I've been saying for years on Sovereign Tech is that none of the major tech companies other than Microsoft, which I said would have been open to it, and now they do use it, uh, and Facebook, and I'll talk about that more in a second. None of the other tech companies have any interest and they will never, or at least, you know, not in the very near future, maybe decades from now, they would use, they would use Bitcoin. That was my claim. And, you know, I think it proves if they wanted to work within, I mean, there's just, there's no sign. Amazon's not going to take it. Google's not going to take it. Apple's not going to take it. The infrastructure would exist for them to be able to easily do so, but no one sees any code that looks remotely like that that's ever going to happen. And Android Pay in and of itself, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a long uphill battle 
to take on Apple Pay at this point, in my opinion. But most people admit that they don't even really like all that anyway. Uh, so whatever. It's it's not a big deal. It's Android Pay is out there. I don't really give a shit. It doesn't do anything for me. Uh, but make it very clear that, that there is no sign whatsoever, and nor do I think there ever will be, of Android Pay integrating with Bitcoin. Just not happening. Um, but the, you know, something I did predict, and this was about a year and a half ago, maybe even two, you know, two years ago, it'd been a little while was that circle, the company circle would, which is a Bitcoin, you know, processor, kind of like your Coinbase's and all that, uh, run by a guy who made it very clear. He wants to work with the legacy system. He, you know, he wants to, I mean, this slap nuts wants to really like, he's ready to, you know, suck the world bank dick. Okay. Uh, they, I think that they are going to integrate with Facebook. I said this because I said, you know what? I know their marketing, you know, I know that they're, they're one of their teams, one of their marketing teams went to Facebook and, and was working, you know, and was hanging out at Facebook. Now that wasn't, I don't think that had anything to do with, okay, you know, can I, can I buy advertisements on Facebook? Nobody goes to Facebook to advertise with Facebook. You just, there's a simple, you know, fill out. I mean, like there's no reason that's an, that's a total waste of money, you know, to get a tour of Facebook and, and, and then just run ads on Facebook. So I think they went there. I went, I think circles team went there because they were working with Facebook. And we've seen in the past couple of months where the messenger app, and we knew long before then too, because it was starting to show up in the code. Remember how I was talking about that with Android pay, how you would see this stuff start to show up in the code. We started seeing in the code for the messenger app that there would be a wallet of some kind, not a Bitcoin wallet necessarily, but a wallet. And now it's a reality. You can send money with Facebook messenger. Okay. And I think that I, I've predicted for a long, long time, and no one else has said this. I know no one else has said this, that uh, Facebook would would take Bitcoin, would integrate with Bitcoin. Now, there's an issue with that because I, I kept wondering, I was like, why aren't they doing this already? I'm kind of shocked because it's been so long. Uh, you know, what, what's what's the holdup here? Because it would bring a lot of legitimacy to, you know, circle what they're doing. So you would think that they, they'd really want to be making this rollout very fast. Uh, and certainly for Facebook, it would finally make a payment processing solution, uh, you know, a reality. Because a lot of people have tried this outside of PayPal. PayPal's really been the only one that has taken off. Uh, like with Gmail, you can send money with Gmail. If you look at, on the Gmail website, uh, when you compose a message, there's a little dollar sign. And you can send money with an email and all this stuff. Lots of people have tried this sort of thing. And other than PayPal and Bitcoin, it's never really taken off. It's never really worked. Um, and so, you know, I think that, well, actually, a, a good friend asked me a question and then it just hit me, uh, you know, with the recent Bitcoin XT uh, developments, you know, to where Bitcoin XT can handle uh, more processing power. And then it just it struck me right there is that for Facebook to accept Bitcoin, it would need something like Bitcoin XT. Because. You know, you're going to add on a billion people effectively. That's how many users Facebook has more or less, you know, into the Bitcoin network. And how exactly, you know, how is Bitcoin going to handle that? That's, you know, that that instantaneous bit of scaling. Now, some people might argue against this, but I think this is this is what's going on here because Bitcoin XT allows for two things. It allows for more than that, but at least two things. One is unconfirmed transactions. So that would allow for Circle, who, is inter who would be integrated with Facebook Messenger, that would allow them to, you know, uh, stagger the releases of, you know, various, you know, transactions that Facebook would do into the blockchain, because there's going to be a shit ton of them. 
you know, if when Facebook, uh, you know, takes on Bitcoin, which I think is going to happen. And then also, you know, it would allow for that amount of because that's the thing, right, is that people would say, look, we're not at the point to where, uh, you know, Bitcoin can't handle the amount of transactions that are getting sent, uh, you know, in, in a timely fashion. But then the Bitcoin XT guys say, well, you don't want to wait till you get to that point. You want to solve the problem now. And that's why we need Bitcoin XT. To be clear, I don't support Bitcoin XT. Uh, you can listen to my episode about that a, a few weeks ago. And I, I, I think I made that very clear and got some very nice reviews uh, about that episode. But anyway. Anyway, uh, so Bitcoin XT may be the thing that Facebook was waiting for, that Facebook and Circle was waiting for, for them to integrate uh, Bitcoin. I think that's the key. That, and it took until somebody mentioned that Bitcoin XT was going forward, and it took the kind of the validity uh, that came with Bitcoin XT, or at least the supposed, the purported validity that it has uh, for me to realize it. And of course, for the friend to ask me about that, because he said, you know, what would happen if a billion people just jumped on board, you know, with Bitcoin from Facebook? And and it's a great question. And I think that that XT, Bitcoin XT is the answer to that. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I don't like Facebook, so I don't want Facebook accepting Bitcoin. Fuck that. Fuck that shit. I want them to tank. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't think that it's somehow I'm like anti-Bitcoin because I don't want Facebook taking Bitcoin. I don't want Facebook to exist. So anyway, but that, that, that's a solution. So I think if, if XT really takes off, you know, and Circle gets behind it, then you're going to see Facebook, you know, through Messenger be able to do Bitcoin uh, payments because of the fact that it'll be able to handle a billion people coming on and it allows for those unconfirmed transactions. Again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that that's, that's the way it is. <laughs> So anyway, let's get into, uh, let, we'll get into, it's kind of a shorter one, but I think it's an important thing to, to talk about because a lot of people got really excited about this. This is our main story here. And this is coming from Quartz. And it's this mind-controlled prosthetic robot arm lets you actually feel what it touches. The U.S. government uh, said today, September 11th, woohoo, uh, that it successfully made a Luke Skywalker-like prosthetic arm that allows the wearer to actually feel, feel things. Now, what a marketing scheme to say, oh, this is just like Luke Skywalker, how Luke Skywalker got his hand chopped off, and now we can replace it. Uh, um, at a conference in July, reading on, the U.S. Uh, DARPA presented the achievements uh, it's had to date in building a robot arm that can be controlled by a human brain. A little over two months later, the agency has announced at another conference that it's managed to update the technology to give the wearer the feeling of actually being able to sense things with the arm. The robotic arm is connected by wires that link up to the wearer's motor cortex, the part of the brain that controls muscle movement, and sensory cortex, which identifies tactile sensations when you touch things. The wires from the motor cortex allow the wearer to control the motion of the robot arm. And pressure sensors in the arm that connect back into the sensory cortex give the wearer the sensation that they are touching something. According to the project's manager, Justin Sanchez, the team blindfolded the first person connected to the robot arm and lightly touched his fingers. He was able to recognize which of his fingers had been touched, even when the team tried to trick him by touching two fingers at once. Quote, he responded in jest, asking whether somebody was trying to play a trick on him. End quote. Sanchez said in a release, quote, that is when we knew that the feelings he was perceiving through the robotic hand were near natural. End quote. The work is the result of a nine-year project run by DARPA, blah, 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 blah. DARPA, however, is remaining tight-lipped on the details of the project's success, like just how sensitive the robot arm is to differ to different textures or surfaces uh, until it's passed a peer review and then submitted to a scientific journal for publication. Until then, we'll just have to 
assume the agency has pulled off what hasn't happened since a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But search your feelings. You know it to be true. Now, if this were for anything other than DARPA, I would have laughed at the bit of Star Wars marketing and thought it was actually pretty cool. Um, but there's been other stories, you know, that, that, that are other uh, uh, sites that have covered this story. And they were just talking about, oh, finally, wounded veterans can get their movement back and they can do this, you know, and, and all that. And they really put it into the context of what's going on, I think. They, 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 they sort of unconsciously hinted at why this technology is even getting moved forward and developed, uh, particularly by DARPA. Now, while certainly I have lots of empathy for wounded veterans, be it physically or mentally, um, I am a veteran of the U.S. Army, so I get it. Uh, I have a lot of empathy for those people. I don't think, and I'm sorry to say this, okay, uh, because really the heinous conditions, the the atrocity that our militaries as a whole, um, what they do to the human condition, even people that supposedly voluntarily signed up and all this stuff, uh, deserves a whole lot of repayment, especially your limbs if you need them. Please don't confuse what I'm saying there. But I don't think that that's what, that's what this is about. I think this is about making sure Johnny doesn't have to go home in the future when he loses an arm or loses a leg on the battlefield. Instead, Private Johnny will just get a replacement. And then he can get right back in on the field. He can get right back into the battle. Yo, Joe, here we go. That's what I think this is really about. This isn't about helping people that, you know, have been wounded or whatever and allowing them to live a normal civilian life. I think that this is all about making sure that the Army's investment that they put into their property, which is what a soldier generally is, can continue to function and not have to be sent home. Maybe, maybe this is uh, some kind of precursor to the fact that there's going to be a whole hell of a lot more wars coming up in the future. And the military or they, them, those know that you're going to have to make sure because we're going to run out of people if, you know, they, they just they, they disappear from the military because they've lost a leg or something like that and they're no longer functional. That's what this is about. And I'm sure also that with DARPA, this has something to do with uh, with a degree of AI, uh, you know, and then things of that nature. I mean, you could go there. There's a long stretch of, of conspiracy road. You could go down with this. But at the end of the day, I think that's what this is really about. And it's sad because you'll hear a lot of and I've heard a lot of guys in my own time in the military who did get injured to a point to where they could no longer, you know, uh, quote unquote, serve in the military. And they said, you know, that they wanted to do anything they could to get back. They would use all these other kinds of prosthetics, nothing quite advanced as what DARPA was doing here, but they wanted to somehow function within the military continually because that's all they knew. They'd been in there so long or they bought into it so much, whatever the case may be, that they wanted to stick into it. So don't think that DARPA necessarily... And I believe me, I feel bad for these guys to think that way. You know, you know, these 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 veterans and uh, not so veteran that, you know, they want to continue on after, you know, losing half their body or whatever the case may be. OK, 
Okay, I have a lot of empathy for that, but but please understand that I feel that that it drives me nuts that there's people who think that holy shit, wait a minute, maybe what I was doing was so inhuman that that's you know that that's what why why all this terrible you know things happen to me and why I need replacement body parts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This stuff could be used. You know, in very helpful fashion, no doubt about it. I mean, there's people who are born without limbs. There's people who lose it over accidents and things like that. They have nothing to do with war. That have nothing to do with anything close to that. And I think it'd be wonderful if they could take advantage of this sort of thing. That'd be that'd be great. And as long as their body parts aren't connected to the big bad internet in any you know shape or form, that'd be great too. But sadly, this is going to, I think this is mainly being devised and is going to be used to keep soldiers on the battlefield. And sadly, even more sadly, is that there are soldiers that would want it. So don't think that DARPA is like being some kind of mad scientist. Yeah, they, they, certainly in a way they are. But there's lots of people that would sign up for this shit. They wouldn't get forced on them. And that's tragic as hell. That's my take on it. This is Sovereign Tech, and I'll be back with more. Sega challenges you with the ultimate video game, the Sega Master System. Hang on, hang on. With more accurate control, more detailed graphics, more levels of play. Awesome! The Sega Master System comes with power base, two control pads, light phaser, and two great video games. Hang on, and Safari Hunt. Gotcha! And with other games like Ramble, Outrun, and Choplifter, the excitement never stops. The Sega Master System. The challenge will always be there. Thank you for the exclusive, Mr. Sovereign. Please, Jane. It'll be our pleasure. Tea? Oh, Thank you. I must say, for an anarchist, you're not what I expected. I'll assume that's a compliment. It is. Uh, is it true what they say about you? That you're a godless hedonist, bent on ending governments and conservative values? All true. But, but, what about supporting the troops? Marriage, white picket fences, and apple pie? <laughs> Come on, Jane. I love pie. As far as everything else, it's all just here to keep you from being happy. Wouldn't you rather be traveling the world, fucking every day, not worrying about what other people think? Uh, oh, my, Mr. Sovereign. Come to think of it, I never felt like I fit into the system very well. I always wondered what it's like to be with an anarchist. Well... Here's your chance to roll the roulette wheel and find out. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, where I cover the stories that get in, sent in to me through the various channels available. Of course, you can go to zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com. They all go to the same place. And there is a contact us or a contact tab at the top there. You just hit that and there's tons of ways to get in touch with the show. In fact, there's even a, a contact form. So I don't have to know your email address. I don't have to know your name. I don't have to know anything about you because I respect people's privacy and anonymity uh, or, you know, desire for anonymity, perhaps. Um, so f feel free to let me know. And you know what you want me to cover there, because this is where you get to take over the show. And this is a story. What I'm going to cover this week. This one's pretty interesting. And talk about conspiracies. <laughs> this can kind of run into the realm of what some would say is uh, pseudoscience, perhaps, perhaps, 
Maybe there's reality to it. Maybe there isn't. There's, there's, this is a highly contentious issue that a lot of people don't know about. And I've talked about it in the past. I talked years ago. I talked about it on Free Talk Live um, and was promptly laughed out. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, admittedly, I've been a little, little, you know, and I'm not saying that I necessarily believe that, that, that what I'm about to talk about is all true. Um, I usually make it very clear when I feel very strongly about something as being factually accurate and other times when it is speculation, it is really important to always separate speculation from fact. And this is one though, where finally I, I got this and this was actually, this was sent to me like a year ago, but If finally a source that is a little more credible online, and I hate the fact that, that, you know, we, we divide things based upon credibility and some degree of reputation online and whatever, but this is a little more credible. So I want to cover it here now, now that I have a source, you know, that, that, that has a little more sway. And this is going to be from vice motherboard in particularly. And this has to do with the God note. Now, that doesn't have to do anything with God or spirituality. There is some degree of science here. Whether you agree with the science or not, that is a whole different ballgame. And I'm going to, you know, in some ways, I'll leave that to you. But I want to bring it to your attention. I want to talk about it. And here we go. Uh, This is by uh, Chris Hampton. The 432 Hertz God Note. Why fringe audiophiles want want to topple standard tuning. The first time Ivan Yanikiev heard an instrument tuned to 432 hertz, he says. It was like he'd heard God speak. In the men's dressing room at the musical drama theater, Konstantin Kisimov in Veliko Tarnova, Bulgaria, Yanikiev, a young National Academy School conductor, had his friend, Velimir, turn his cello down 8 hertz from the standard A equals 440 hertz. They were arranging an experiment. Velimir, a quote-unquote skilled cellist, uh, Yenikov told me, told me, started in uh, on the prelude to box cello suite number one in G major. So, so, si, so, so, blah, 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 blah. Yanikov sings to illustrate. It's one of the most performed and well-known pieces by Bach, but in that backroom rendition, transposed not even a half of a piano key lower, the song sounded fresh and exciting. Quote, it was a channeling of pure light and love that vibrated through the whole room, he said. It was new, it was brilliant, end quote. In November 2013, along with uh, Alexandros Gerolis, Yanikiev co-founded the 432 Orchestra. The group is comprised of 12 string players, some borrowed from the best professional ensembles in the country, and is led by the two conductors, all of whom work for no more than goodwill to explore and profess the power of that particular frequency. So far, they've made two recordings and they're fundraising to take their show on the road, hoping to concert throughout Europe. Yanikiev is resolute, quote, 432 hertz is a vibration that has to be spread around the world, end quote. For him, it's not just pleasant to the ear, it's a profound key capable of unlocking mysteries on the level of consciousness itself. Yanikiev is particularly spirited, uh, is a particularly spirited member of a French community of musicians and listeners who believe there's, there's something more quote unquote natural or quote unquote truer and genuinely in tune with the universe. When the note, when the a note above middle C along the keynote against which instruments are tuned is set to vibrate at 432 cycles per second or Hertz, as opposed to the Western universal 440. 
Their number is not entirely arbitrary. It has its precedence in historical pitch standards and tuning systems, some as old as ancient Greece. Community hubs like Omega 432 say that the frequency frequency provides a more positive listening experience. Testimonials on the site resolve or revolve on phrases like, quote, at one with nature, uh, end quote, quote, a state of ecstasy like no other, end quote, and quote, it resonates with my heart, end quote. AttunedVibrations.com claims it has the incredible power to fill you to, quote, fill you with a sense of peace and well-being, end quote. They couch their arguments in specious talk about sacred geometry and the natural vibrations of celestial bodies and number sequences found at the level of DNA. Uh, YouTube is a 432ers bounty of both classic and contemporary recordings across any genre, from Herbie Hancock's uh, Headhunters and Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon, to two-hour deep house sets, stray tracks by storied Norwegian black metal act Burzum, and chart-topping pop from Lordy or uh, or Pharrell Williams. That's not to mention ambient uh, meditative, meditative tracks, quote-unquote sleeping music, whale song, and the like, all digitally retuned to 432 hertz. Believers revel in uh, cymatics demonstrations as though they've caught the fingerprints of God, ogling the complex patterns that arise when their frequency is projected through water or some other uh, excitatory medium. Though it should be noted that those radiant sun shapes, as impressive as they are, uh, would look entirely different if the medium surface area changed even slightly. They shed volumes online and off on the comparative advantages of 432 hertz over 440. The thinking attached is at times as practical and real world as helping singers to not strain their local chords at the higher uh, tuning standard. At the other end, it can be as tinfoil hat producing as a conspiracy theory that A440 is in fact an exercise in mood control instituted by the Nazis with the call for its standardization in 1939. What's most interesting is that for all of the conspiracy numerology and new age goop about higher consciousness, the 432ers underlying inquiry, how does the relationship between music and emotion work, is a particularly hot topic dear to the contemporary research fields of auditory neuroscience and the psychology of music, wherein researchers study things like how the brain turns a sequence of sound stimuli into musical coila. Uh, the uh, uh, yeah, qualia, the sensitivity of our pitch perception to microtonal differences and what we really mean by the phenomenon called perfect pitch. Despite all of their mutual interests, these two communities pay little attention to one another. When you start exploring the world of 432, all roads lead to Brian T. Collins. While the idea behind the God Note is at least 30 years old, a century by some accounts, millennia by others, a more pronounced and widespread community has coalesced online. The Scottish-born, Toronto-based producer, musician, and educator runs the Omega 432 website, a one-stop resource for all things 432. He's one of the movement's most prolific writers and has been thinking about the frequency for the better part of his 33 years behind the bass and piano. In that time, Collins has passed through most every station of the professional musician's game. He's been an indie rock upstart opening for CanCon brands uh, names Sloan and Lowest of the Low. He did a stint as a jazz solo pianist on the Island Princess cruise ship tripping around uh, Alaska. And he's long been a successful for hire session player. When Yanikiev conceived of his chamber orchestra project, Collins, the preeminent 432, pra 432 practitioner, if the movement has one, became an important advisor. In Collins's particular school of 432, and there are others, each with its own quirks, uh, dropping a concert A by 
8 hertz is foremost. The second step is to is a tuning system he's adopted from German-American music scholar Maria Reynaud's 1985 book Intervals, Scales, Tones, and Concert Pitch. Uh, C equals 128 hertz. The temperament or tuning is called 12 true fifths. Most Western music uses equal temperament, dividing the 12 tone scale into even increments with each semitone or adjacent piano key corresponding to a 6% increase in frequency from the preceding key. 12 true fifths, like just intonation, another alternative tuning system instead emphasizes the importance of small integer ratio relationships between certain intervals. That is the distance between the two notes in a scale akin to Pythagorean tuning Reynolds Intonation prizes the pure fifth, which means the relationship between the frequency of the fifth note in a scale and the first note or root in the scale is always three by two or three, two for temperament nerds. The main differences between this and the historical Pythagorean system is that while Reynolds similarly tunes the white keys by power of three, two or its inverse, the black keys are tuned to fifths built around what she calls ge geometrical mean. So this goes on and on. Uh, you know, through, throughout the whole thing. And you can read uh, more about it. And I'm going to skip ahead, actually, because I want to get into kind of kind of the meat of this, because a lot of it's just really technical stuff. And if you're into that sort of thing, please feel free to, to read more on this. I want to get into the, the, the deeper aspect um, of it. Even though we assume, this is reading on ahead, even though we assume the standard is A440, as if it's become a constant, many bands don't use it, says Dr. Alexander Bonus, a specialist in Baroque music and historical tunings at Bard College. As much as we want to say pitch has been standardized, Bonus says his friends and orchestras across the U.S. and Europe play higher, around 442 or 444 and 446 hertz. Quote, we want to say that in a scientific way, A is 440, but in reality, it rarely is, end quote, Bonus explained. He's played trumpet in a Baroque group that performs at much lower concert pitch, historically accurate to the composer's day, uh, region, and preference. That's another trend, Bonus says. Uh, groups playing in historical tunings, it's all part of a picture he paints about the relative arbitrariness of, a con of concert pitch. In Bruce Haynes' comprehensive a history of performing pitch, the story of A, he says that over the last 400 years or so, concert A has varied from anywhere between 380 hertz to 500 hertz, the difference of a major third or greater on some part of the keyboard. In 17th century Germany, Bonus says, there were two dispositions for concert A, each referring to its own relative pitch. The Corton uh, referred to the high pitch A that floated around 460 hertz, and the Camerton or chamber pitch was found was around 416 hertz on, on average. For Mozart, A was 421 hertz. So point being with, with a lot of, with the, the 442 and all of that is that the supposedly the evidence stands that most things aren't at most concerts, at least today, and even historically weren't done in 442. Now, I will bring up the Golden Stallion here breaking in, of course, I will bring up to you that the the 442 uh, versus the, the, you know, historically, the 442 was not the standard. So when you go back 400 years or you go into the 17th century Germany stuff like Bonus is talking about, okay, certainly, no doubt about it, that there wasn't a standard at the time. Supposedly, supposedly, the standard for 442 didn't come around until Nazi Germany, which the article kind of touches on. And this standard also went through RCA, which, you know, the, uh, what is a radio corporation, America, whatever RCA had everything go to 442. And so by and large, as long as there has been a 
serious recording industry. Uh, you know, we're not talking about like the time of Tommy Johnson or Robert Johnson and all, you know, talk about great musicians, uh, you know, from the from the 30s or even the 20s. Um, you know, as long as there have been, you know, records and all that stuff, you know, really came into far more prominence and into a more standard industry pre Beatles, pre Elvis even. But, you know, it started to become an industry that would allow for things like Elvis and the Beatles to come into play. Uh, 442 has been the standard that things get recorded and played at. Uh, yes, there is, you know, like like bonus said, I don't necessarily consider this a debunking because bonus is saying it's like, look, concerts all around the world play at different, you know, in different venues, different halls. And if we're trying to be uh, historically accurate, we're going to play like they did, you know, like like, uh, you know, Pythagorean, you know, tuning and all this, all this stuff. And we'll do it there. We'll do it then. We'll do it the right way. That's historically accurate. OK, all that's fine. But now, again, I'm not saying I buy into the conspiracy here. But I'm just saying that that doesn't really knock it down. Okay, because that's just saying because no one, you know, nobody's saying that 442 uh, was the standard back then. They're saying it became the standard in the beginning of the 20th century and particularly with Nazi Germany. And now the 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 conspiracy around that is that there were scientists in, in, you know, in Nazi Germany that figured out that this is going to ramp people up. This is going to help bring on the anger, bring on the fury for the Fuhrer to take advantage of that's kind of the conspiracy and that we're hearing stuff that is just confusing our brains, blah, blah, blah. There's a, you know, a lack of uh, uh, symmetry in our thinking and in the music and all this stuff. And it just, it excites all the wrong parts of the brain. That's the conspiracy. That's the idea. In fact, one of the books mentioned in this article was one that I had heard about growing up. Uh, when my, you know, when my family became, when my parents became Christian, when they converted out of Judaism into Christianity, uh, Seventh-day Adventists talk about this sort of thing, that rock music has no place in church. Uh, in fact, that maybe in, I mean, now the Bible says, actually, I think that no instruments should be allowed in, in church. That's uh, in Habakkuk. Uh, or it was, it was something like, even though, you know, if you want to get into the biblical aspects of things, I mean, they already brought up the spirituality on their own, which obviously I don't buy into a stitch of that. Not one little fucking stitch. Um, but you know, the, the, the Bible's history on music is, uh, is an interesting one. I mean, when, when King Saul was feeling ill, he asked for David to come, you know, bring his harp or his lyre and, uh, you know, soothe his soul with music. And apparently it worked. You know, whatever, however much you want to take that as a historical document, I, I don't take it as that literal of a history, but I think there's certainly some historical precedents within there. Uh, and also, you know, it was a commandment that uh, and, and there's some churches that follow this, the commandment that you you're you're not supposed to play instruments that, you know, the only music should be coming from, uh, you know, from the throat. Uh, and so some people would say, you know, that that all of that ties in with this 442, uh, you know, this 440 to 432 hertz uh, conspiracy and that everything should actually be 432. I mean, you can go far out with this stuff. Um, and it's gone so far, actually, that there are apps out there. Uh, there are, I mean, and I, I have a link in the show notes. If you want to check out the apps, if you want to see what you think for yourself on the, the whole matter, uh, there's the 432 player by Ofer, which this is actually interesting because this just recently was made available for Android. The 432 player has been available on, on iOS for years. Uh, it's told and it's totally free. 
And again, there's a link in the show notes. There's other things like you can use, uh, what is it, FUBAR 2000 for Windows. Uh, that'll do it. I think Winamp even used to be able to do it if you can still use that. Neutrino for Mac. There's lots of apps that will allow you to play this at 432. And supposedly, you know, you'll be able to like hear the music the way it was meant to be, uh, or it will get rid of all that, that, that angering, uh, you know, aspects that, that of, of the music and all this stuff. And, and you won't be so uh, inclined to, to, to get angry, to be violent, you know, that that's where all this violence, some people say that's where all this violence is coming from is because everything's being transmitted in 442 whenever you turn on the radio, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and you're hearing it that way and it's just, you know, it's creating this violent reaction in your brain or this. Ten, this violent tendency in your brain. I mean, this is the conspiracy. That's how it goes. You know, and like I said, what, you know, I had heard about this, uh, you know, in church and they were saying that, oh yeah, like your ears will get hot. Like it's, I mean, it goes into all kinds of wild places. Okay. There is some science behind it. There are people that are researching these notions. Okay. You know, into the, into the idea of 432. It's not all quackery. There's a lot of quackery around it, in my opinion. Um, the fact that the Nazis, you know, started tuning things by standard to 442 or by to 440 hertz and that uh, RCA did as well. That is fact. Um, you know, there, there, but there's so much in between that that becomes very questionable. Um, and I think the, you know, auditory, auditory sciences are something they don't get talked about much. Um, and there is, you know, there are some, you know, something I, I, I heard uh, recently was you have the MP3s. And in fact, I don't know if I mentioned that on this show, but I think on September 26th, perhaps, uh, that there, or maybe it's the 22nd, maybe it's September 22nd, there is the chance that MP3s will become, uh, th- they, will be, they will fall out of patent. Right now it's a patented technology by some metrics, even though nobody knows, ex- nobody can decide on who actually holds the patents. So there's a huge argument uh, around it. And so nobody gets, you know, because you have a massive collection of MP3s like I do, uh, you know, nobody's actually coming after you for having those MP3s or for uh, ripping things into MP3s because nobody can decide who actually gets to do the accusing and would get paid out for its use. But some people would say that I, I think it's September 22nd, uh, of this year, 2015, that MP3s will fall completely out of patent and thus they will become, you know, I mean, they could go under GPL or, you know, they, they, they're, it's, it could kind of be an open technology, um, which is interesting. But recently there were some, some, it was on the new screensavers. I was, I was, uh, watching that and they had a guy come on who was playing these really weird sounds. And what you find out these weird, like, like, I mean, it sounded like the wind blowing and like maybe little like whispers and all this stuff, uh, nothing terribly coherent. And what you found out that, that what those sounds were is that's what was getting removed from songs when you converted them to an MP3 because MP3s is a, is a lossy format, meaning that it loses some data and it loses some range. Now there's, you know, the, the argument for MP3s and for other sound, uh, you know, sound codecs too, like AAC and, and whatever else, uh, is that you don't lose anything that humans can hear. The problem is, is that this proved actually, yes, there are things that you can hear that are getting removed from MP3s. That's a fact. Okay. Even though the science would tell you that you can't hear above such and such a range and MP3s just don't remove that. But that ended up being false. And there's talk about people that have been called quacks. 
Okay, the people who say that digital that I mean, not even MP3s, but just the fact of recording music digitally and playing it digitally, that you lose things that humans can hear. You know, that was that's a whole school of thought that that that, uh, uh, you know, analog sounds better. Right. That records sound better and that they can record uh, a lot of natural things that that the human ear can actually perceive. Maybe it doesn't necessarily come out as like a coherent sound, but it's something that the human ear can still perceive. And now, you know, some of that science is kind of getting opened up to where they may be right. I'm not saying they are. I'm not that good. of You know, I'm not an auditory scientist of any kind. Okay. But they might be right. And so, you know, it, it starts raising some questions. Is this whole 432 hertz, you know, tuning things at 432 and making that the standard? Is that somehow uh, more beneficial to the human brain, to human hearing? It's a big question. And the science is hopefully now getting done. It's been a year since that article came out uh, in those groups, as I understand it, to some degree are getting together. So it's being looked into, but it's still being studied. Um, and, and again, you know, all, all of this, you know, it was, people would tell you up and down with MP3s that you're not losing anything as far as what you could hear. But very recently it got proven. Yes, there are things. Are they important things? No. All right. They're not important. It doesn't matter. And maybe 432 doesn't matter, but is there something to what's what people had been saying for quite some time? Yeah, there was. It ended up being absolutely accurate that there are things being taken away from music uh, because of it being done in a lossy format. And I mean, before there was, you know, before it was a hard decision, I mean, people are already going to, what is it, Flack, uh, the free lossless audio codec, right, which is totally open source. It's a wonderful thing and lots of services support it. Um, you know, they went to that because they're like, no, 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 we know something's, something's not right here. The quality is not the same, but then I think we're also, we're missing something. And the people that created Flack ended up being right. So I don't know if the 432 thing is going to shape up to be accurate. You're welcome to try out any of the apps, uh, and the software on the various platforms. Like I said, there's a link in the show notes for episode 143, uh, where you can, you know, you can try them out. And, you know, certainly the disadvantage that a lot of people are going to say is because most people listen to their music through their phone now, uh, and you're going to have to have local copies that the app can, uh, the 432 player is the best one. And it is, it's a pretty full featured player. I, I was impressed um, by it and it's updated. In fact, the Android one was updated on September 15th, just a few days ago, uh, 2015. So this is not like some antiquated, you know, uh, uh, app here. And you're going to have to have a local storage copy. I didn't see that it detected what I had locally stored from uh, the various online services that I used. So you're going to have to copy on your own music on there uh, to give it a shot. You know, put it directly into a, you know, a folder on an SD card or whatever the case may be. But let me know what you think. I'd be interested to hear. Uh, you know, what, what your experience with 432 is and, and the app also the 432 player app even has like a streaming radio uh, button that you can hit to where you're just going to hear, you know, pleasant sounds and music, apparently, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, and I, I can't make this clear enough. I don't I'm not saying I buy into this. OK, and I'm not and I certainly don't buy into any of the spiritual aspects or the God note of it. I, I'm an atheist. I'm as hard an atheist as they come. OK, <laughs> I don't buy into that. Don't confuse what I'm saying. But maybe there's some science here. Maybe, you know, 
and 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 it would be it'd be fascinating to find out if that whole Nazi conspiracy ended up being true. But then what the hell was RCA doing? Tuning everything that way. Were they behind this sort of thing? It's a big question. I mean, and it would take like I I wonder how many people would it take to, you know, to implement a conspiracy like that? I mean, come on. <laughs> but again, the science may end up standing. So anyway, I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. For years, there's been this myth that because you can blow up a condom to the size of a watermelon, that one size fits all. But imagine trying to roll a condom over a watermelon. Right, there's no way. That's because the ring of unrolled condom material doesn't stretch very much. And good luck trying to roll it over the head of your penis if it's wider than average. And if the base of your penis is thicker than average, the unrolled part of a condom can feel like a tourniquet. Well, fortunately, condoms now come in different sizes and shapes, and there are lots of options to explore. On our website at 90secondsonsex.com, I've got links to dozens of sampler packs of condoms that are available for most online condom sellers. You'll find sampler packs of regular-sized condoms, larger or magnum-sized condoms, and snugger-fitting condoms, which are more popular than you might think. There are also condoms with different shaped heads and textures that can result in different sensations for both you and your partner. And as an added benefit, condoms that feel right and fit well are less likely to break or slip off. So rather than grabbing condoms from the fishbowl at the health center, I encourage you to find a condom that has the best fit and feel for your particular anatomy, one that's comfortable for both you and your partner. Make it your brand and stock up ahead of time. Thanks for listening. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. Oh. Ah, that was... I'm speechless. Oh, if I'm leaving a reporter speechless, I must be doing things right. (gasps) Natalia, what's going on? Agent Sovereign, read this. Then meet me at the Central HQ. I have to go. What was that? And why would someone give you something on paper these days? Because it's something that is too important to risk sending digitally. As for what the message says, it looks like I've been doing things wrong. Important Messages. It is time for Important Messages, where I cover the emails that get sent in to me. Of course, you can go to zog.ninja or sovereigntech.com. Again, same website. You go there, and there's a contact tab at the top of the page. You just hit that. My email address is there. There's a contact form there. There's Telegram, Twitter, you know, all the social media stuff. There's a million ways uh, to get um, in touch with me there. So, Feel free. And you can ask me any question you want. And I keep you anonymous uh, unless you say you want me to mention your name. Otherwise, I keep you completely anonymous. Uh, Let's see. So I've got a few questions here to get through. Uh, And sometimes I don't read the whole question just because, you know, a lot of it. And believe me, I am so honored uh, when people say, you know, how much they love the show. They say the show is absolutely awesome. Uh, They really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all of that. I just may not always read that just because, you know, I want to get to the meat of, uh, of the question so I can get through as many questions as possible. Um, one of the questions was that they said they love the show and they wanted to, they said, could you please do a Disney special that I had teased in the past? So, okay. So I have a bunch of specials like lined up. Um, I've yet to release them. They're not just lined up, but some of them are recorded and they're all set to go. 
Uh, and the, a Disney special is not one that I, it's not one of those that I have lined up or, you know, I, I mean, I can line it up, but I don't have it already recorded. Um, I will do a Disney special, uh, where, and the, the Disney special, what it is about is about a, it's heinous business practices. And believe me, it, it pains me to no end that Tron, uh, Power Rangers, Star Wars, Marvel. I mean, a lot of things, a lot of universes that I really enjoy. Well, I don't enjoy Marvel so much anymore, but I used to, uh, you know, are all owned by Disney, which I consider to be just a, a really, really heinous, deplorable company. Um, but anyway, you know, the, the ideas, you know, that I was going to cover was because there's a lot of conspiracy theories around Disney that they put uh, subliminal messages in their movies and, you know, and all of this and that they they have some kind of weird occult things going on. And, and I have a lot to say about that topic. Uh, and, you know, I'll save that for uh, for a special, but I will do that special. Thank you for requesting it. I will certainly do that special uh, in the future. So I have other ones I want to get out there first. I have a hedonism special I want to get out uh, and some others. And, you know, speaking of appearances, Actually, I think uh, this this coming week, September 23rd on Wednesday, I will be on Declare Your Independence once again. But I was kindly asked by uh, just the wonderful, the amazing, the stunning Paige Peterson. Uh, she of Made Safe. She had asked me to be on. She's going to do a whole show or at least it's going to be a couple hours, if not more of the show about made safe and she wanted me there you know to talk about it as well and uh i'm going to be messing around with made safe in the next few days uh you know to to make all that hot and happening um so keep a lookout for that i'll certainly share it on the zog blog after i do it um but but if you you know if you want to listen to it live he runs really early in the morning but you can find up you know find declare your independence or freedoms with an s phoenix.com right freedomsphoenix.com and uh you can find you know you could listen in uh alive if you want to this week anyway uh let's see i had a great question about should i log into windows 10 with a bum account that was the essential gist uh because the the listener had said they recognized that with windows 10 um a lot of the services that windows 10 offers like even the windows store uh calendar mail cortana go down the list um, they all ask you to log in with a microsoft account and uh, this is a great question, and it's true. They, they do do that. Uh, one of the things that I'd recommended in the past with Windows 10 was to, there is a way to where you don't have to log in with your Microsoft account. Windows 8, 8.1, and 10 all really, really want you to, when you first install Windows 10 or you first boot it up, they want you to log in with your Microsoft account and they want that to be your Microsoft account. Now, I don't like that for a few reasons. One is, is if your Microsoft password is really long. And believe me, I've got a really long Microsoft password to have that attached or to have to type that in every time you want to log into windows is a major pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, it really is. That's where if you just had a simple lock screen password of some kind, or even a pin number, uh, you know, that'd be far superior. Now, maybe that's one of the kind of under underlying reasons why windows 10 is going with what is it called windows hello where you can log in with your face in my opinion that's a whole slew of other problems that is just a terrible idea uh, but maybe that's why they're going for that because they know people have really long uh, windows you know microsoft account passwords um, as far as using a bum account to do it i mean i, I don't know the only thing so i recommend using like outlook.com as a web service Instead of Gmail, I just recommend using something other than Google shit. Do whatever you have to use. Just don't use Google. 
Uh, and, and even better, don't use Facebook if you can help that. But um, but anyway, so Outlook is a viability, you know, and using Outlook for email. I mean, at the end of the day, unless you're going for like some real anonymity, and even then, if you're shooting for some degree of anonymity, maybe I wouldn't use Outlook so much, um, but you're going to be using PGP. Anything you want to use, you know, if, if you're wanting to, to use Outlook and still have secure email, you're going to end up using PGP, right? And you could use something like Mailvelope with Outlook. It integrates very nicely uh, with Outlook, or of course, you could do it through Thunderbird. You could use Enigmail. And then, you you know, your stuff would be sent through PGP. But if you're doing anything that connects you with a service that, you know, with a Microsoft service that isn't in the clear, as in you're not just using it to send PGP only emails, uh, at at the end of the day, you might as well use your normal email, I think, Um, particularly because Windows 10 and a lot of those services like Maps and Translator Beta, all, you know, all this different stuff is, is really, even when you turn off the advertising ID, when you turn off all the privacy encroaching stuff, um, there's still some degree of data that Microsoft is is getting. You could use a bum account and some of the services, like I think the Windows Store and maybe others, you can choose to only log into that app. You don't have to log into the whole operating system. Um, but kind of, you know, if you're wanting to use that advanced stuff, a lot of that advanced stuff is particularly like the, the Windows Store or like Maps and all that stuff. And, and please understand, other than the privacy encroaching end of these things, it's amazing how well, and this is going to be becoming more true when uh, when the uh, TF2, or what, what do they call it? There's a huge update coming out for, for Windows 10 at the end of October or the beginning of, of November. Treadstone, or I mean, that's not Treadstone. I can't, I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. TF2 is a short name. Uh, when that comes out, that I think Windows 10 is going to end up doing so much more that to do any to take advantage of a whole lot of the things with Windows 10, you're going to want to log in with some kind of account. And at the end of the day, I don't know that using a bum account is going to help. In the case of Windows 10, with other services, you know, with other operating systems and services, I think that's a fine idea. But with Windows 10, I think it's going to be end up being all so all encompassing. You might as well log in with you know with your main account, unless you're doing what I recommend which is your Windows machine is for gaming only. You only use it to game on. Then, yeah, use use some bullshit account uh, by all means. And if you're not using Cortana, I mean, yeah, then I guess fine, use a bullshit account. So I guess it could really go either way. Um, but I, I think using, you know, your main account, uh, you know, depending on what you're using the machine for, you, you to some degree, you might as well. Um, but... Anyway, that yeah, that that's that's my thought my thought on that. Uh, it's it's down to some degree of, of personal taste. Uh, let me get into some of these other these other questions here. I hope that answered that. <laughs> I really do. I know that sounded really confusing, but this is all about so much of what's going on with modern operating systems, and it's not just Windows 10. OS X is just as bad. Uh, so much of it comes down to personal threshold of 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 what you want to share, and it's really all about what are you using like your Outlook.com account for. Is it meant for encrypted email? Well, if it's just meant for that, then keep it separated and use it there. Is your Windows 10 machine just for gaming? Well, then keep it stupid and just use it for gaming. That that's that's kind of the shtick here. Uh, so someone oh someone shared a really interesting Android app experience here, and I thought I want to read this whole thing. This is really cool. 
Uh, I wanted to share an unusual experience with you, uh, as I'm sure you can appreciate its rarity, Golden Stallion. I have been using G Potter as a desktop podcast client. That's a great one. Stallion breaking in. That's a great one. I've, I've recommended that for some time. Uh, and antenna pod as my Android client connecting it to G Potter. I noticed that Podcatcher Deluxe had a better compatibility rating on gpotter.net, so I went to give it a whirl. Unfortunately, the paid versions are only available through Google Play or Amazon. Below, I've included the short email exchange between, and, and, and he did this whole write-up. Uh, basically, he just attached, he, he emailed the developer, okay, uh, of Podcatcher, and, and he said, basically, he just attached the APK, which is the install file for, uh, you know, for any, any Android app to an email. And I threw him $5 over PayPal. I asked him for an alternative to Google and he replied with Amazon. When I explained that I didn't want Google or Amazon software on my phone, if it could be avoided, he just sent me the app best customer support I've ever had from an Android developer. Mind you, this is all before I paid him anything. After trying out the app, I still like AntennaPod better, but I trust that my feedback will actually be addressed by Mr. Hussman, given that he was so willing to work with me. I've attached the APK to this message in case you'd like to try it out. And I did try it out. It's a very nice piece of software. Uh, his source code is on GitHub, and I trust that you toss some cash and feedback uh, if you decided to go with Podcatcher full time. I thought Podcatcher Deluxe, it was a great, it is available on GitHub, it's open source, it was a great solution. So if you're looking for something more than AntennaPod, even though AntennaPod's really good, uh, Podcatcher Deluxe is great. I think this is really cool. I was really impressed. First off, I'm impressed by the listener for going to toe and saying, look, I don't want the Google Play Store, I don't want Amazon if I can help, I don't want to mess with it. You know, can we do something else? And so I'm impressed by, you know, by really the tenacity of the listener. Thank you. For, you know, I'm, I'm really honored that, that, that you take, you know, a lot of what I say with Dark Android so seriously. Uh, and you can go to darkandroid.info to find out more about why this listener did this. Um, or, you know, what, what the, 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 the mindset is behind it. Uh, but for the developer... Now, I don't know if this would work so well with, you know, larger developers. Like, I can't imagine Microsoft is going to let you, you know, pay them. I mean, their stuff's free anyway, but it's going to let you pay them and let you download independent uh, APKs at any point. Though maybe in the future that'll happen. Um, but for the developer to really, like, be willing to, and to understand, and I'm sure he didn't call, you know, the, uh, this listener crazy. Saying, look, I don't want to deal with Google or Amazon. Uh, you know, I don't like them. I don't trust them, whatever. Uh, kudos to the developer. That's fantastic. Yes, it's absolutely worth giving that guy $5. That's phenomenal. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. And, you know, speaking of which, also, we talked about that 432 hertz or the, the, the 432 player earlier when we were talking about, you know, the is, is music being distorted because of, you know, and is it a conspiracy around 440 versus 432 earlier in the show? Uh, the guy that makes that, you could probably get in touch with him and say, hey, could I just get the APK? I'll gladly give you some money, even though that app is free. Um, I'd be interested how that exchange would turn out. So, so there it is. We, it seems if, if it's completely open source, I think you can probably contact a lot of these people and you could just get the APK from them. They'll send it to you via email. Of course, yes, you're going to be trusting the developer uh, to some degree. No question there. Uh, but this is this is great because that's something I was saying for, for a long time now that needs to happen as to where we need to be able to just to just grab the, you know, the, the install file, we shouldn't have to rely upon app stores and repositories. Just grab the install file and, and install it and away you go and things, you know, and, and maybe they'll auto update and whatever else. Uh, I thought that was great. 
So really cool that that is that is absolute an absolute uh, possibility. Uh, you know, kind of a kind of a proof of concept. Uh, let's see. Let's let's get to another another question here. Uh, this one's this one's interesting. So I had boy, this is a lot. This person's been listening forever. <laughs> Uh, because I had talked about in the past that mobile gaming, I thought was going to be uh, the future. And in many ways, I've recently kind of, you know, reversed on that because nobody in mobile gaming in real mobile on there. And, and I've talked about this on the dark Android blog, uh, dark but nobody is, you know, really including a controller as in like something you'd use with your PlayStation uh, but stock for your, you know, for your, your mobile device, for your phone, or even your tablet. It's just, it's really not there. Now, certainly you have NVIDIA, they have the NVIDIA Shield, which in and of itself is a game controller with the screen on it, uh, in all of this. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think mobile gaming is still technically like the most profitable thing. And it's, it's definitely a realm I am going to break into here in the future. Um, but yeah, it's not turning out the way that I expected. And part of that is the fact that, like I've said on the Dark Android blog, okay, is that with, with mobile gaming, you, you can't have the really great controls. Uh, touch controls just aren't there. And even with 3D touch that Apple's come out with and all that shit, um, it's really, it still doesn't allow for that fine-tuning controls to where you can play a Sonic game on, you know, on your mobile phone or a tablet uh, with, with a lot of precision that those kind of games need. Uh, and so emulation is really great on Android, which I've said in the past also, like the emulators work really well, but you've got to connect a controller. You can't do that shit on touch. And I don't think it's ever going to be possible to do it on touch. Uh, you need, you know, a hardware device of some kind to interact, you know, with that, uh, you know, with, with gaming worlds, you know, and with video games, um, in general. So, and I thought that there would have been a direction towards that. In fact, I did a whole article where I, where I talked about it, where I talked about the original Xperia play phone, which I think came out in like 2010 or 2011, where it was a, you know, it was a slider phone, but it didn't slide out to a keyboard. It slid out to where there was a PlayStation, a mini PlayStation controller. Now that works, but that's not the direction the industry's going. So yeah, so I, you know, mobile gaming is still the big deal, no doubt about it, but is it going to be as serious as desktop or console gaming, even like Android console game, which there's, those are kind of out there, you know, with the Razer and uh, the, the NVIDIA Shield TV. Uh, yeah, it, it, it'll, it'll work there, you know, but, but mobile gaming in and of itself. Uh, no, it doesn't, it's not the way they are making the hardware. It's not lending itself towards serious gaming. So serious gaming is still going to be done on consoles, still going to be done on computers. Uh, that's a fact. So yeah, kind of predicted that one wrong. Maybe that'll change in the future. Uh, but there it is. Anyway, I had more questions, but I'll have to get to them another time. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. In January, 1982, the Commodore 64 personal computer was introduced with a 64K built-in memory for under $600. So to stay even with Commodore in memory and price, IBM will have to slash its price, quadruple its memory. Apple will also be faced with a sizable chore, and so will Atari. As Shearson American Express put it, the Commodore 64 could be the microcomputer industry's outstanding new product introduction since the birth of the industry. Jane and Natalia, come on! They're right behind us. They can't just jump off this building. No, but with a little help I called on. (laughs) 
Hello, Agent Sovereign. The jetpacks you requested? Right on time, Elizabeth. I am not flying with one of those. I'll hold you, Jane. Relax. Tech is just a tool. It is time for Tool of the Week, where I cover a piece of software, an app, product. Sometimes it's something a little more physical. Uh, sometimes it's not so physical that I consider either useful. Sometimes it's something that's terrible. Um, but this week, it's actually something, this is kind of interesting. And I've done this for Tool of the Week before, kind of, where I talked about clothing as a uniform. Uh, that was that was some time ago. And I have a story here from Complex that actually got shared to me by a listener. Uh, and I thought this was really cool. And it's study confirms that wearing black clothing makes you appear more attractive, intelligent and confident. And this story is from August 28th, 2015. So this is uh, really fresh. And I'm going to just I'm going to read through it really quickly here. And because and the reason this is important is because as you listen to the intro uh, and as many people who have been longtime listeners know or people that have met me, um, I literally always wear black like and everything is black. You know, maybe there'll be a little accent of color somewhere, a very little accent. Uh, but by and large, I, you know, I wear, it's what I call triple black and I wear it all the time. Okay. And I'll talk more and people have asked me about that, uh, recently. And I know I've done it in recent, um, uh, important messages segments. So let's read on here for a long time. Now we've used our humble eyes to come to the easy conclusion. Black is by far the best color for clothing. Now, a study has confirmed that wearing black makes you appear more attractive, intelligent, and confident, the independent reports. The study surveyed over a thousand people to find which colors they most associated with certain qualities. Black came out either first or second in every positive category and also was not thought of, thought of very often in terms of negative qualities. 66% of women thought black was the most attractive color on a man. These results held true the other way around, too, as 46% of men, the largest majority out of any of the colors, also preferred black on women. And Stallion breaking in here, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I certainly think black looks great on a woman, looks great on everybody. Red was the second uh, as the color that is most closely associated with confidence. However, people also most tied the color red to arrogance and only 12% of responders thought it marked intelligence. The colors least associated with intelligence were yellow, orange, and coming in dead last, pink. Boy, if there isn't any kind of social norms around that one. Uh, the survey was conducted by UK retailer, by sure, blah, 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 blah. Based on the findings, we hope you're able to cop the murder, uh, whatever. I'm not going to read the rest of this stuff, but there are some statistics there that you can look at, uh, you know, to that interesting charts, uh, that break everything down. Purple honestly performed pretty poorly, uh, which was a little shocking to me, but anyway, uh, yeah, interesting point. <laughs> now the reason, as I've said in the past many times, cause I get asked this over and over again. Um, the reason I wear all black is well, for one, uh, I've always wanted to be, and I've had a fascination with ninjas my whole life. I'll admit to that one. Um, but something I noticed when I got around 15, 16, and really when I started 17 is when I really went triple black, uh, was I realized that like most of the cool characters and kind of heroic characters that I knew of in, in, in entertainment at the time, this would be the nineties, uh, they all wore black like all the time. And I was like, well, you know, that that's so cool. And so I just kind of wanted to mimic that as a teenager. Uh, but it, it just ended up sticking with me. I had a brief stint in the military where I didn't always do that and a brief stint after that where I didn't. Uh, but then once I became, uh, you know, an anarchist, 
there, there was a point around 2007, which isn't exactly when I became an anarchist. But around, you know, around there, I like to say that, that I, you know, I kind of uh, came to my senses, as it were. And so I went back to wearing triple black again. And then when I became an anarchist, uh, you know, a few years later, it just fit. That's what anarchists wear, because it was representative of being a person of no country. You know, kind of the black flag. That's what the black flag means, is that you don't have a country. That's why there's no color on it. Or the black rose is another symbol of anarchy. Uh, and, and so, you know, and in fact, there have been raids done by governments around the world, including in the U.S. and the colonies, where uh, they have raided, you know, anarchist uh, uh, apartments or enclaves, whatever. Obviously, these aren't like your more your ANCAP types. Um, and they were taking their black clothing because it was such a symbol of anarchy. So this is for some people, this is very serious. Uh, and literally, when you look at my closet, I mean, it's just a gigantic black hole. You know, I mean, it's just all black inside there. And but now now you have some degree of uh, of at least polling, not necessarily, maybe not science that says that black is considered attractive, confident, intelligent. It just it exudes that. So maybe now if you haven't already gone triple black yourself, now you have a lot more reason to whether you're, uh, you know, uh, a man or a woman. And I know I have a, a very sizable female audience, which is I also recognize is very rare um, in, uh, you know, in the Liberty space anyways, I, I think maybe in podcasting in general, I don't know. Uh, and I really appreciate all of you. So if you haven't done it yet, here's your chance. Here's your good reason. <laughs> to start wearing uh triple black feel free to join me and no it's it's not a cultish thing believe me it's been it's been being done by anarchists for a hundred years i mean for for a very very uh long period of time it makes it makes quite a statement so and then then there's the whole notion of like having a daily uniform that 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 really clears up your your mind and all that we've talked about that on sovereign tech uh in the past so cool i don't know i don't know that it makes me look uh handsome or anything but <laughs> uh, but uh, hey what the hell that's great if it's if it's a positive thing I'll take it anyway I'll be back with more it's a sovereign tech hey, got an energy spike launch no! in the third age of mankind an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity it is our last best hope for peace it is Babylon 5 Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. This is James Smith. Formerly of WASP News, now an anarchist. And I want to introduce you to Brian Sovereign, former agent of... I have little time. You need to know what's going on. The government is lying to you. Corporations are lying to you. Even is lying to you. They're trying to centralize everything. Trust yourselves. Your computer is your only country. Coexist and learn all that you can. Hack the planet! Hacksack. It is time for Hacksack, where I cover issues of hackers and security. Uh, 
And, you know, on this show, hackers are absolute heroes. Way, uh, you know, white hat, gray hat, black hat, whatever. Uh, they're heroes. And this week, I've got an interesting story. We got kind of a shorter segment this week. Um, but there's an interesting story that came out. It came from, it's actually, it's kind of an older one from February. Uh, but it's by TechDirt. And I'll admit that TechDirt is one of those new sources that I think jumps the gun without doing a whole ton of research and they can be a little sensationalist. So before somebody emails me and said, Hey, do you know, tech dirt, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I get it. Um, but I think they're right on with this one. And I think they've been doing a, you know, a little bit better in the, in the past year or so. Uh, cause they really like one of the things they really flubbed with was the Google photos report that Google photos was uploading your photos without your permission. Uh, just come to find out Google was being very sneaky with the fact that that if even if you uninstalled the Google Photos app, if in Google settings, the Google settings app on your phone, which you can't delete, if that says upload photos automatically, it would continue to do so. Um, so it wasn't necessarily secretive, but definitely Google was not you know, it was really, I think, being kind of sneaky uh, with that. But Tector kind of jumped the jumped the gun on that one. So I don't blame you if you consider, you know, sometimes they're reporting to be questionable. But this report that I'm going to read to you quickly, I think actually just proves a lot of what we've already talked about that is very provable and, and coming from very reliable sources. And so I want to read it here, opening up, cars are delivering tons of driving data to manufacturers with minimal security and even less transparency. Nothing's driving the acquisition of data faster than, well, driving. As new technology makes its way into vehicles, so does the apparent desire to harvest information about the vehicle itself. Between the outside harvesting, uh, automatic plate readers that gather plate location data, as well as photos of vehicle occupants, and the quote-unquote inside transmissions, there's very little any number of unknown entities won't know about a person's driving habits. And that's not even including what's transmitted and collected by drivers' omnipresent smartphones and their installed apps. Senator Edward Markey has expressed some alarm at the amount of data being collected and distributed by vehicle manufacturers. His office was produ has produced a report showing that while many manufacturers are involved in collecting data, very few of them seem concerned about the attendant risks. Even worse, many respondents to his office's questionnaire seem to show very little understanding of the underlying technology, and most have not made an effort to fully inform customers as to how much is being collected or how it's being distributed. Drivers of today's connected cars aren't going to like the report's findings. Uh, quote from it, nearly 100% of cars on the market include wireless technologies that could pose vulnerabilities to hacking or privacy intrusions. Of course, stallion breaking in, that's been proved now over and over with, uh, you know, Chrysler, with Jeep and all that, uh, and, and many more. Uh, reading on, while some basic security measures have been implemented, the fact remains that transmitting data always poses a risk. Three of the 14 manufacturers that responded to Markey's questions had actually let their security measures stagnate or decrease from decrease even from 2013 to 2014, even as the amount of data transmitted rose. Worse, many of the respondents deployed security measures in a quote-unquote haphazard and inconsistent fashion, and nearly all respondents seemed unable to fully process the questions posed by Markey's office. 
Quoting from the report, of the 16 automobile automobile manufacturers that responded to the, to the letter, 13 of them addressed these questions in some way. Chrysler, Mercedes-Benz, and Mazda did not respond to the question at all, and five other manufacturers provided general responses that addressed the questions as a whole instead of providing specific responses to the question subparts. Now, Stallion breaking in real quick. Look, I don't blame if a company doesn't want to respond to a senator. I wouldn't fucking respond to a senator. Screw them. Screw politicians, you know, as a whole, but reading on. Okay. I mean, the point, the point stands. Seven of the manufacturers stated that they use third party testing to verify their security measures, while five stated they do not. And four did not respond to this part of the question. The manufacturers were also asked about how they secure this type of software delivery updates or patches. Each manufacturer responded with descriptions of how they provide such software through authorized dealers with the appropriate tools. Automobile security experts consulted by Senator Markey's staff said that all the responses are similar and that they presume a malicious actor could not access or acquire the technologies that mechanics have. They state that software updates for systems should be cryptographically verified by the ECU being updated in order to efficiently prevent intrusions. And that's the end from that report. These four-wheel tracking devices are collecting and transmitting tons of data, including GPS location, sudden acceleration slash decelerations, seatbelt usage, destinations entered into navigation systems, last location parked, distance and time traveled, and a variety of information on other driving components. Almost all of this is transmitted back to the manufacturer for their own use. Nearly 100% of 2014 vehicles record and transmit driving history. Most of these manufacturers could not provide a satisfactory answer as to how they secure this data during transmission and more than half store this information, quote unquote, off board at their own data centers. Manufacturers seem to consider onboard collections as inherently secure. In uh, reading from it, in the case of onboard storage, no manufacturer described any security system to protect that data. That's the onboard data. And several of them noted that no security measure is needed since accessing data would require a hard wire connection. Stallion breaking in. No, it does not. We know this now that it doesn't need that. It can be done, you know, Bluetooth can be done over the over the World Wide Web. Like what was done with the Jeeps. Just because it's on board doesn't mean shit. Reading on. But that doesn't mean they treat wireless transmissions with much more care, uh, to quote from the uh, from the report regarding security measures to protect data that is wirelessly transmitted outside the vehicle. Only six responses were received of those five provided vague responses, naming encryption, passwords or general IT security practices. And only one specifically mentioned that they designed their systems to limit the transfer of personally identifiable information. Uh, and that's the end on that report. Part of this is due to the fact that automakers security measures are purely voluntary at this point. But the fact that it would likely take a federal mandate to improve security is disappointing. Fuck, I'll say. Not only are manufacturers less than forthcoming about how much data they're collecting, but they're apparently uninterested in providing a minimal level of customer service, uh, as in proactively assuring uh, these data transmissions are secure. As for the data harvesting itself, manufacturers can't seem to find a better justification for this than, quote unquote, improving the customer experience, a phrase pretty much synonymous with, quote unquote, selling customers more stuff or collecting for collecting's sake, end quote. 
Most manufacturers retain this data for one to 10 years with only one manufacturer offering the option for users to delete their data at any time. But that single nod to customer agency is far outweighed by the general indifference shown by the rest. Markey's reports finds that purchasers may be allowed to quote unquote opt out of certain collections, but this often comes at the expense of certain functions. No manufacturer presents this information up front, preferring kind of like we mentioned with Google Photos, that information is not put up front, uh, preferring to hide it in owner's manuals in terms of service agreements. The default should be opt in with upfront explanations of what, how, and why data is collected. But that would lead to a dearth of information and automakers, like many other private companies, prefer to gather data first and deal with the fallout later. Although it goes unmentioned in Markey's report, there's also the question of how this data is handled when the government comes looking for it. Most of what's collected would presumably fall under the third-party doctrine with drivers, quote-unquote, knowingly turning this information over because of page 173 in the owner's manual, etc., which means it can be acquired by law enforcement slash intelligence agencies with minimal effort slash paper or paperwork. There are also other government intrusions that need to be considered as well, like California's desire to tie state-enforced emission standards to driving information already gathered by a number of manufacturers. Not only are manufacturers not guarding against having their collections hijacked by criminals, they seem equally unconcerned about safeguarding this vast amount of data from the government itself. Ooh, boy. Now, I'd like to remind you of a story that uh, actually Stephanie was on for this one, too, that we read a long time ago, years ago on Sovereign Tech, where the CEO of Ford made a flop. And he, when he said at a, at, a, at a car show, he said, we know everything that everybody does. You know, and, and he was being quite literal. And he had to kind of like, like recant and say, well, I didn't exactly mean that, blah, 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 blah. And I raised the point that if you know so much about where every car goes and what everybody does, how are you not catching every single goddamn criminal out there? Like, how, how is that not happening? So one either comes to the conclusion that they really can't detect that much information or that they are unwilling. I would argue it's more the unwilling because, and I mean, and this just goes to show how asinine these car companies are in anything that they're doing. They, they're not hiring the right people. And I, you know, I even did a little independent, independent research myself and I don't see Ford or Chrysler or, you know, GM or any of them with a whole, you know, with, with, with uh, job listings for encryption experts. And there should be, and there's not. And to make it all the worse, the reason I love to read this story, I just, I relish in reading this story, is because people talk shit to me all the time about, because I say, don't buy a car uh, past 1996. I recommend that to everybody. Don't do it. But they tell me, oh, well, you don't trust the computer. You know, I mean, they go down this whole thing. No, I don't trust the computer and I don't trust the goddamn car companies either. How much more proof do you need? Then Senator Markey's, uh, uh, you know, his report. No, I don't trust those fuckers. Yeah, that's why I want to drive old cars. I mean, and look at what's going on in California with this emissions thing. So that means they could detect how far you've driven, how far off, you know, how often you've driven and all this stuff. So what are they going to be able to tell you? Are they going to be able with OnStar or with your Tesla or whatever other car that's interconnected? Or like what happened with the Jeeps? Are they going to be able to turn your car off and say, now, listen, Jack, you've driven too much this year or this week or today. You're only going to be able to go to work and that's it. We're not going to let you drive anywhere else. When is that going to come? How about that? Hindering your freedom of movement. But oh, please put those computers in those goddamn cars. Please give me my Tesla. 
bullshit, man. You're asking for it. And it's real easy to send the market signal. There's plenty of ways to buy, you know, buy older cars and all this stuff. And boy, if you want to, and, and it, it, this, I say this all the time, but it so highlights it. If you really want it to be green with, you know, if you're really concerned about the environment with your cars, you would drive all the older cars until, you know, you ran them into the ground. Because otherwise you're just producing more and more cars and you're just wrecking the environment more and more by those standards. I'm not saying that's what I think. I'm saying by those environmental standards. Okay. These people don't give a shit about the environment. They give a shit about control. They don't give a shit about you having a good time with your entertainment system in your car. They care about control. They care. And and are they selling off all of this data to advertisers and other companies? Oh, I bet you bet your ass they're selling off your info because that's some pretty hot info. Everything that comes out of your car. Oh, they're going to make sure that those car companies are never going to tank like they did uh, a few years ago. They're going to stay right on top. Why? Because now they can sell off all this goddamn data all over the place. Ah, screw it. Don't go telling me that I'm crazy for wanting to, you know, hop in, not wanting to hop in a car that's post 96. No way. I'll be back with more. This is Sovereign Tech. It is the year 91001 BCE. Witness humanity's origins in Hyperchronius, a classic role-playing game for Windows PCs with a story like no other game before. A liberty-oriented experience that is not to be missed. Go to zog.ninja to get your copy of Hyperchronius today. Use the code SVT to get $1 off. Hyperchronius, zog.ninja, code SVT. Agent Sovereign, Skylab C is in a polar orbit of the Earth. Computer, it's not Agent anymore. We don't work for them. Natalia, Elizabeth, Jane, and I, and anyone else that wants to join us, we're rogue now. We have to put an end to domination. Agent Sovereign, come join us. Yeah, join us. Don't be a wanker. <laughs> well... There's no reason not to have fun in the process. I'm coming, ladies! Oh, yeah! Yeah! Anarchy! Anarchy! The Climax. It is time for The Climax, where I can talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. And while I'm on location here, I'm going to go into the Wayback Machine of my brain. And yes, I am on location, though. I'm not going to tell you where. And that's if you're wondering, was like, what's with the audio quality? Well, it's because I'm not, I'm not in the not in the studio. Uh, but anyway, I'll be back in the studio next week. Don't worry. Um, but I'm, I, I want to talk about something. This is. There was a while now. And, and like I said, I can talk about anything. It'd be a movie, TV show, cartoon, you know, book. It could be a topic, whatever. And this one's kind of a movie slash cartoon. Uh, a lot of people, I got a lot of great response from people who had never seen Fire and Ice before, which I talked about a couple weeks, two, three weeks back, uh, which is I consider to be the most beautiful animated film, uh, animated anything uh, in history. And people really liked it. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. So check out Fire and Ice if you haven't. But there's another little little piece of work from the 80s that uh, that I looking back on it now is kind of interesting. And this is from 1985. And you have to understand that in the mid 80s, like the hottest thing on the planet, 
well, there was a few hot, like G.I. Joe was big, but Transformers was the shit. I mean, like, that's what was going on. And so there was a lot of copycats uh, for to, to, to Transformers. There was uh, the GoBots, which was a really famous, uh, you know, really famous one. Uh, and then, of course, there was the Rock Lords, all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> so you had quite a few of these. But there was one called Robotics that was made by Milton Bradley. And it was done in 85. And they made, like, this really short uh, animated series, generally... You know, there was like uh, I think they did it in like six episodes where there was 15 minutes per episode. But then a couple of years later, and this is how I originally saw it on video, they released, uh, you know, they released a VHS of the complete series, but they, they made it one movie. So it wasn't really an animated series, at least not the way I grew up with it. It was it was a full on movie about an hour and a half long. Um, and. It was it was pretty cool for for what it was. And what you what you had, you know, you had these humans on this planet. They're kind of trapped on this planet. They're trying to get away. And eventually they run into, you know, these these machines uh, and they're called the Protecticons. Uh, and then there's and, and of course, they run into the evil ones that, that are called the Terracors. They're led by Nemesis. Uh, the Protecticons are led by this character named Argus. And but it's a very strange. It's not just. Like GoBots, I think, was kind of clear that that was a uh, that was a copycat of Transformers. I was trying to cash in on that uh, because the GoBots literally would transform into like jets or cars, you know, things that looked like everyday, you know, things you'd see today, which was, I think, kind of the key to the popularity of Transformers. Uh, but robotics didn't didn't bother trying to do that. The the, the you know, the Protecticons and the Terracors, they would take whatever shape, you know, fit that that was going on, you know, I mean, like they'd look like, uh, uh, you know, gigantic creatures or like, you know, futuristic spaceships, you know, whatever, or not spaceships, but, um, uh, you know, vehicles of some kind. And so it looked, you know, it looked pretty cool. And, and it had, which transformers kind of had this too, where there's this sort of like this really like ancient history behind it, but robotics really had an ancient history. In fact, originally the protecticons and the terracors were lizard people. <laughs> Let the conspiracy theories ride. <laughs> We've talked about enough of them in this episode, but uh, they're originally lizard people and they, you know, their planet was going to, there's going to be this, this terrible catastrophe if I remember correctly on the planet. And so they uploaded all of their, uh, uh, you know, thought patterns, their brains, you know, their, 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 not their souls, but for lack of a better phrase into a computer. And this computer, you know, could could transfer it into, you know, various mechanical bodies um, because the bodies of the actual, you know, the lizard bodies were long gone. But the, the consciousnesses could get transferred into various, you know, robots of whatever type. And it's, it's a really unique idea, like definitely far different from what Transformers was was doing. It, it really set it apart. But you got to, you know, and when, when you watch it and there's like intrigue because there's times where they get, you know, the Protecticons get used to like this one Protecticon being one of the good guys. But then you find out that actually uh, one of the uh, Terracore consciousnesses gets put into uh, a Protecticon body. And so, you know, he's like an inside guy, you know, an inside man and all this shit, uh, a spy and everything. And the humans and, and then there's like the synergistic approach around the idea that uh, the humans, when they get behind the get behind the wheel, as it were, of one of these robots, either Protecticons or Terracors, and the humans break off into factions, too, eventually, uh, when when they can do that, that the Protecticons and the Terracors suddenly become far more powerful. So there's kind of this message of you need to mix man with machine to have ultimate power. 
And that's the thing is that, you know, looking back on it, there's a lot of weird little like, you know, I talk a lot about symbology on the show whenever I feel like, you know, dalliancing into that. And uh, the listeners always, you know, say, oh, yeah, keep talking about it, you know, run with it. So this is one where, where there's a there's a lot of that. I mean, like you have the lizard race, so you have the symbiosis between man and machine. Um, there's even uh, like like one of the things they take on are these volcano rock monsters. Uh, during it like when they're trying to get to the top of this volcano which if one wants to get saucy you could say that's the archons kind of like if you ever heard my review of the uh the, the amazing and not christian but very esoteric film noah with russell crowe uh, i talk about the archons and the volcano you know rock monsters and that essentially so i mean you've got that you've got a point where when they're trying to free somebody like there there's these um they 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 take this kind of energy they eat this energy Sort of like the Transformers, how they had Energon. It's kind of a similar deal. And they find that they're, you know, these rock monsters are harvesting all this stuff. And when they go to the rock monsters lair inside the mountain, there's Stonehenge. <laughs> I mean, it's made up, but you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> like it's so loaded uh, with shit. And I mean, even like going down into the cave, I mean, you kind of have that whole idea of, you know, the descent into hell or like kind of the, the crystal caves, which there's crystals all over the place, kind of like cave of treasures with Adam and Eve. Um, I mean, <laughs> and you know, something I did like, like before I get into more of that, one of the things I did like about it is they had female robots, like right out of the gate. Like it took forever for transformers to finally have like RC, right. Was that her name? Uh, to have to have female transformers uh this had female you know protecticons and uh and terracors you know right out of the gate I, th I thought that was pretty cool um but they all talk about like this old homeland called xanadon which they say it really fast they say like xanadon and it almost you know if one wanted to get again if you want to get saucy it almost sounds like zion <laughs> you know so people are like, oh, it's the Zionist thing, you know, and all, and all this shit. Uh, and I mean, it, you could go so far out, like there's kind of an Atlantis myth built in. You have reincarnation that gets done through the, uh, you know, through the transfer of consciousness and all that. Um, it, it's it's really wild. Like, I, I mean, it, it's a unique and I think you can watch this on YouTube. I'm sure you can. Uh, but robotics, R-O-B-O-T-I-X. And it, there's just, there's nothing else quite like it. And when you look at it, when you kind of give it that lens, and again, you got to look at it through that lens. Otherwise it's just kind of fun, you know, more, I mean, it, it's not, I think adults can enjoy it. It's not that childish. Um, but when you look at it through that lens, you go, wow, somebody really put a lot of thought uh, into this, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's like, like you have a kind of a transhumanist agenda from lizard people at that. I mean, <laughs> There's all this shit in it. Uh, it. It's pretty wild, but it's, it's from 1985. I mean, and, and whatever it, at the end of the day, I think it's just a lot of fun. It's a classic. Uh, I think it's better than the GoBots, And I actually, I really enjoyed um, the GoBots. Uh, but it, it's, it's better than that. At some point, I don't think that this would ever be a franchise that someone would want to uh, reinvigorate like transformers keeps getting redone and redone and redone and, and none of it ever really matches up as hard as they try, even though the, uh, uh, the microcons were pretty cool. None of it ever like really matches what was done in the eighties. In fact, there's a new transformers game coming out. Uh, I think next year in 2016, and they finally said, screw it. We're going back. We're doing cell shading animation, kind of like jet set radio. And we're going to do it uh, just like it's the 80s. Bumblebee is going to be a Volkswagen Beetle again. Fucking right. Uh, 
<laughs> okay. So I don't see anybody ever. And like GoBots has even come back and forth. In fact, GoBots like ended up getting subsumed into the Transformers line, even though it's very different from what, what you would probably remember. If you remember GoBots from the eighties and back when they did the rock Lords and all that. Um, I don't see robotics ever really making a comeback. They did release the, they released it on DVD a few years ago. Uh, that whole thing. But, uh, you know, I can't imagine sales did that well because to the average person, it's probably just a Transformers clone and people don't give a shit. But to the not so average person, I think it's actually a pretty cool story. I didn't like the fact that there weren't any human women that that kind of sucked. I don't know how they were going to ever explain that if they went further with it. Um, but uh, but it's a great story. It's got a lot behind it. And if you know your stuff, if you know your esotericism, there's a lot of weird shit. Or if you know your conspiracies, there's a lot of little weird shit in this that I wonder who the hell put all that in there. Who, you know, who kind of made uh, uh, that story and who, who brought it all together. So, uh, but it, it's good. I mean, it's not sectars. That's fucking amazing. <laughs> but, and it's not Shogun Warriors or anything, but it's, it's really good. Robotics. Give it a shot. I think it's on YouTube. You can hunt it down. Just an hour and a half. And I, I thought it was a lot of fun. So anyway. That's enough for this week. Uh, I've got a wonderful surprise for you next week, so keep a good lookout for that one, baby. Carpe Lucem! I'll see you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love. And love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.